0: Ooh, 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 ooh. Come
1: on, y'all. Welcome home, co-journers. I'm glad you're here for another episode. And I'm so excited to introduce to you my dear friend, uh, incredible psychologist, and a leader in the field of decolonization, Dr. Jennifer Milan. Who is a major disruptor in the mental health industrial complex? Her work is an urgent call to dive to the root of global and generational trauma to unlock the wisdom of our sacred rage. Dr. Jennifer Milan birthed decolonizing therapy, a psychological evolution that weaves together political, ancestral, therapeutic, and global well being. She is also the center of the popular Instagram account at Decolonizing Therapy, and recipient of Essence Magazine's 2020 Essential Hero Award in the category of mental health. Welcome, Dr. Jen.
0: Thank you for having me, Dr. T. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's such a pleasure.
1: I am so excited and appreciative of you being here and your contributions to Shifting the Tide have been so incredible and beneficial to those of us who are doing this work. And so as we reflect on colonizing mental health and colonizing our grief and our rage, I want to first just ask you your journey of how you landed and are doing the work you're doing.
0: Mm, Beautiful question. Thank you. I would say that my journey started with my own relationship to grief and rage, And I would also say that growing up in a loving yet confusing, emotionally confusing at times household allowed me at a young age to notice things around me, notice things that maybe other people didn't pick up on so quickly. I was a very highly sensitive child and part of my journey led me into teenage years in which... Rage was my best friend, or so I thought, and oftentimes my worst enemy. Oftentimes I found myself with an array of emotion, unable to unlock it or know what to do with it, acting out what I was seeing around me, and like many youth, not having the words to verbalize that some aspect of my home life and my environmental life felt unsafe, I didn't have those words, and I would say that I then went on to go to college, and at that time I thought, "This is it. I'm going to get my undergraduate degree. That's the bare minimum." That's I was first generation college student, Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, Grew up. uh, My parents were pretty much like working class, working poor at times, and I remember my mother saying, "Like your education is so important." She kept stressing education. So did my grandfather, my beloved departed grandfather, and Doctor T. What's so interesting is that I was a elementary ed and um, English major, right? And I thought, I'm going to be a journalist. <laughs> this is fascinating. I'm going to be a journalist. Or I'll be a teacher, one or the other. I love English. I love writing. I love reading. And I found this peer education group on campus that was essentially run by a psychologist at the Counseling Center. It was called Peers Educating Peers. And it was essentially low-key, high-key group therapy every Wednesday. Right. So from three to five, we attended. And not only did I love it, Mm -hmm. but I was like like my my old mentor who would then say, you're going to be a doctor one day. You're going to be a doctor. You're going to be Dr. Jen. You're good at this. The Mm -hmm. feedback I would give people. He said I was naturally space holding, that I was naturally just able to hold that space. Mm -hmm. And so 13 years later, and after internships and moving to California, coming back to the East Coast, Um, I then took over that peer education group. So I was the psychologist there for 13 years. Grants, also facilitating an LGBT support group, doing crisis management, teaching, you name it. And Dr. T, the realization was that because I predominantly worked with either poor white people or black and brown folks, right? Um, Realizing that the way that therapy was rolling and running wasn't always in alignment with what people needed, especially people that don't historically have access, right? Or are denied access or historically forgotten for very purposeful, often political reasons. (laughs) So um, I found that, you know, like some of the black youth I was working with had, you know, more prevalence and more rates of uh, behavioral diagnoses conduct disorder, intermittent explosive disorder, right? We, we know this, we're trained in this. And I found that the over pathologizing, what it felt like to me over pathologizing was not only violent, but also directly leading many youth, particularly black youth straight into like the prison systems. Mm. There was this massive pipeline and correlation and I became burned out, Mm. right? Really thick and burned out. Yes. Even with a ton of self-care, even with Therapy and acupuncture and dance and Zumba and this and that and talking to friends and going out and I would go back on Monday and then by Friday felt like Humpty Dumpty that I had to put back together again. So I started seeing how exploited I was um, and how I blamed myself. Even well-meaning mentors, love them, you know, would say like, "Girl, you got to take care of yourself. You got to take care of yourself better." I'm like, "Yeah, got to take care of myself better." Wow. <laughs> wow. Meanwhile, right here I was spending hundreds, if not thousands of dollars trying to take care of myself. So I took some people's Institute of Survival and Beyond trainings. They're undoing racism trainings. I started learning from student organizers that were Filipino, that were Palestinian, that were Puerto Rican, and they took me under their wing. even as a 30 something year old, 40 something year old, you know, they were teaching me words and things that I didn't understand and taught me to look at systems and structures. Mm hmm. Right. As well as, you know, take personal accountability. Yes. But Mm -hmm. also the ways in which individuals are constantly like redirected and rerouted or having tons of obstacles Mm -hmm. based off of who we are. Right. Or based off of some of our intersecting identities. So that's part. That's the mm-hmm. chunk of the reason how I got to
1: yes. <laughs> Right. No, it is so necessary. One, I appreciate the sharing of our childhood can put us in a position for us to notice things that, as you yeah. said, a lot of people don't notice. Yes. But then also the way individuals are told to ignore these systems and just that it's on your shoulders. You can just choose your wholeness and wellness while we are ignoring that like the house is burning and that the system is not only broken, but built in this very broken way. And one of the things I appreciate in your new book, which is just coming out, Decolonizing Therapy, Oppression, Historical Trauma and Politicizing Your Practice. First, congratulations on the new book. And then I love that many times and understandably, people center uh, race and gender and economics Uh, But one of the first things you name on the first page is disability rights. And I know that many people who are listening um, not only may have uh, any of the other marginalized identities, but can you talk some about empowerment and rights of people, all people with disabilities, but especially invisible disabilities or those who are living with mental health conditions and diagnoses?
0: Yes, thank you. And thank you for noticing that. I I realized that um, part of how, as I was saying, organized, part of how I was re-educated, which I think is a massive part of the whole decolonizing process, is that unlearning. Yeah. And one of the things that I found that future counselor psychologists that I was working with, that they would frequently ask is, well, how is this work? How is therapy in any way political? right? How do we merge that? And I frequently, I even talk about it in the book that I had this professor, I was sort of interviewing to be my dissertation chair. And this person said to me, Jennifer, this is like 27 year old me. (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer, Paul, and I wanted to talk about generational trauma at a time, you know, Dr. T, where people were not talking about it because you understand. And uh, he said to me, politics and therapy don't mix. And I believed him for a couple of years, mm-hmm. you know, a couple because he was somebody I looked up to that, sure. had that, you know, and, you know, be apolitical, be neutral. And why I'm bringing this up is because then when I was in the other position, I was looking sort of down this rabbit hole and I'm thinking, wait, everything about what we do is political. Right? Everything about who has access to therapy, who only has access to community mental health, how long are they going to have their therapist? Is their therapist an intern? No shade to interns, but they come and go often. Right? Um, And interns are underpaid and under-resourced. You know, there's all these questions. There's all these questions. And I started also realizing and becoming educated to the fact that the disability rights movement... Is the mental health movement that we are talking about one in the same? And I wonder why they're often split apart. Mm. And I believe that there may be some <laughs> there may be some reasons behind that. Maybe it's intentional. Yeah, okay. that we don't always think about mental health in that capacity. And so um, the in, the invisible hurt also hurts. Whether we're talking about pain management, you know, having I remember having students coming to coming to see me say, this is prior to the pandemic. Is it possible to do Zoom? Is it possible? And then asking my colleagues, well-intentioned? No, absolutely not. They need to come in, right? Mm -hmm. But looking back and seeing why can't this person have their mental health needs met, as well as not be in deep, deep chronic pain where they can't even communicate with me in Mm -hmm. session because Mm -hmm. they're so focused on their pain in their bodies, you know? And so what often happens, I think also when we look at disability rights is that we're looking at individuals that are asking for access, Mm -hmm. that are asking to just be able to do and live and engage in a way that is their bare minimum. Yeah. Meaning asking for resources that would allow them to work, live, engage easier. So as someone who has multiple invisible disabilities myself, Right. if someone I would have a hearing impairment, and I also live with what we know in the Western psychological world as ADHD. Mm-hmm. You know, so for me, it's constantly learning how to navigate. Yeah. Right. Whether like, okay, did I get that right? Can I read their lips? That what did I say? People are gonna think I'm not paying attention or that I'm spacey or that. So there we know that also this impacts someone's self esteem, their mm-hmm. confidence right? How they walk in the world. And we also know um, that oftentimes those of us that are living with disabilities of all sorts, visible and invisible ones, we're even more, uh, what's the word I want to use, sort of timid, right? Or uncomfortable to ask for help because it feels as though then we're asking for a handout, which we're not, or it feels as though um, we're being a bother because we're always asking for something. Um, and so I do believe that there's a massive correlation. And I think that it's super important that individuals realize that our mental health is not kind of a footnote mm-hmm. and that mental, emotional, psychological health in general is the main event here. <laughs> yeah. When we worked at the university, I remember saying something, I, I don't know, i there it was some speech or something and I was like, shout out to the counseling center, which I was a part of. And I was like, you know, we are public safety as well. Mm. Like part of what we do is hopefully the front line before it ever gets to campus public safety, even though we were cool with public safety, we had a good relationship with them. There was still this sense of students are coming to us with all sorts Mm. of concerns, all sorts of situations from things that happened on campus to off campus. And oftentimes mental health providers are the individuals that are there ensuring that folks can see another day mm. and that, that they can continue to walk in this world safe enough. Yes. I hope mm. I answered the question. Yeah, You
1: definitely did. And so, you know, decolonizing our mental health, paying attention to rights and access uh, and the realities of oppression. Uh, and then I also appreciate in the book something that is often left out when we talk about mental health and psychology is you mentioned spirituality. And so can you talk about uh, that, the role of or the importance of people being able to uh, welcome their spirituality into their mental health journey?
0: Yes, it's my favorite topic, actually. (laughs) I I can talk about that all day. I can all day. I will say, I'll start very briefly, personally, and then in the larger, broader, Uh, well, number one, I feel like we're holistic, interconnected beings. That's number one, right? So you don't have Dr. T without various aspects, right, of your identity. Shout out to Kimberly Crenshaw, right? Yes. (laughs) Um, And we don't have, you know, you don't have me without this aspect of self that is political, that is uplifting uh, this rage, grief access that all of us feel in some way, shape or form, whether we know it or not. You don't have me without also this highly spiritual attuned self. Right. And so I found that a personally, I had to learn how to not just code switch for academia and my education, but I I had to code switch and like hide as, as um, one of my healers and coaches will say today, it's okay to come out the broom closet. (laughs) (laughs) What are are your spiritual closet? right? it's okay to like, it's okay to come out. There's this like this anxiety around naming that you have a connection with source or that you have a connection with ancestor or that you do this work in any way, shape or form. So that's deeply part of me, part of why decolonizing therapy exists Mm. and this work exists. Is because I firmly believe that it has chosen to come through me for various reasons and that I'm a conduit of it. It's not just about Dr. Jen. It is, um, I just happen to be a conduit of it and I'm able to have been a psychologist to talk about this Mm -hmm. and also merge that our history of psychology, bringing it to past and present As I talk about in the book, all in chapter two. So if you're history people, then chapter two is your jam because, you know, I kind of get into this history of psychology and how not that we need to do this today, but part in the beginning, it was about healers and curanderos and shamans and spiritualists and priestesses and what have you, like trying to remove the spirit, the darker spirit, or the the infestation in a person, right? And then they moved on to like emotion and understanding very like, or someone, what is it, choleric and this. And that. like, there's all these different ways that it connects to emotion, but it was about sort of bleeding out or removing this essence, energy or spirits. And in many of our villages, people's cultures globally, from Ireland to the Sudan, to South Africa, to Chile, you know, you had individuals that were the community healers, right? Whether or not they had that name that sometimes were also seen as the social workers. They would take on the children if one or both parents died. You know, they were also the individuals that were helping family members come together. They were there for people after war. And the community also helped and healed them, meaning it was reciprocal, so that maybe they would be washing their shaman's clothes as as exchange. Maybe they fed them every night for a month as an exchange. So I'm not saying that that's where we are today. What I'm saying is um, I believe that spirituality and helping and healing Mm -hmm. have always been in the lineage of care work, have always been in the lineage of psychology and therapy and healing. And so I also find to bring it even more present day to the people that probably 85, and I'm not joking, 85 to 90% of the individuals that would come into me in some way, shape, or form were also bringing in some of their spiritual, religious identities with them. And often, not always, if those identities were hmm, less accepted in the public eye or or less accepted in more dominant Euro-Christian lenses, yeah, um, it would take longer time for them to share. Yes right? Or they wanted to know if it was safe
1: Safe to share. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. So
1: important to name the ways in which people can be silenced, even if it was not directly said, given yeah. the context people live in, they know in general, what is accepted or not accepted. And then they also know from our silence, you know, what is accepted or unacceptable. So, you know, I'm really hoping that the co-journers will, if If you choose to seek out therapy, that it's places where you can talk about your uh, political dynamics and your experiences with oppression, that it's places where your spirituality is welcomed. And then I love the work that you do on emotional decolonial process. (laughs) And uh, in particular, you talk about grief and there is so much grief that uh, many of us are holding right now. And you, you know, raise this critique about uh, the ways in which we're given like this time limit for our grief and even this languaging of like getting over it or moving on. And so can you uh, talk about our relationship with grief uh, from a, that decolonial framework?
0: Yes. Thank you for that, Dr. T. Um, I believe deeply. and And again, this is clinically, psychologically, ancestrally, that grief is part of the soul wound experience. Like Roberto and Bonnie Duran have talked about this soul wound for indigenous folks. And I think Dr. Joy de leary really raises it up in post-traumatic slave syndrome, um, where, you know, just couching it in some of the psychological as well. Um, I think what's important to remember is that You know, trauma is something that happens in our bodies and our minds. You know, when we something occurs and we have such a high level of stress and it feels as though we can't survive what has occurred or that we keep thinking about it or having dreams about it or can't focus on anything else. And I believe that grief is often its invisible sister or sibling that is always wrapped around this like intense experience. And so in my training, I've been taught that grief happens in stages and I have come to believe that there might be stages, however, it's circular. It's sort of like a spiral. Mm -hmm. And I think it's about learning, even in this emotional decolonial lens, learning to live with the grief, Mm -hmm. learning to live with the loss of loving so much Mm -hmm and caring so much and i believe that in this society you know we're being asked in a very colonial kind of like white centered frame to hurry up and get over it mm-hmm. right like here you get 3 days off if of it's your aunt i remember somebody telling me <laughs> the job i worked <laughs> <laughs> in that off. past so you get 3 days i'm like excuse me she helped raise me like like mm-hmm. what like yeah. right like excuse me um and i believe that folks around us who are really well intentioned. Sometimes we do it. I've done it. We want people to get back to who they were Mm -hmm. before the grief tsunami crashed over them. You know, and I believe that grief can be collective. So this, in this emotional decolonial frame, we're looking at grief can be community what's happening throughout the world, you know, climate change, you know, pandemic violence on black bodies, you know, um, Finding children's remains for residential schools. Like, this is the kind of grief that generations feel. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, looking at this frame is saying we're not just experiencing what I'm experiencing, I'm experiencing what's happening environmentally Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. historically. So, I frequently talk about like a trauma burger. And I tell folks, even if you're vegetarian, you can have a sweet potato (laughs) burger. (laughs) Where it's like every day we're ingesting this burger, most of us, right? Meaning the patty is what is happening current day around you and in this world. And the bottom of the bun is your own childhood and adolescent and adult experiences or trauma, stress, wounds, hurt, right? Loss. And the top of that bun is your own lineages experience, like any historical traumas, any woundings. Um, And so every day we are ingesting not what is just occurring, Mm -hmm. but it's getting activated by what the body and the spirit remembers. Mm. Wow. So powerful. And it
1: causes us to question like these assumptions, right? About Time or what even that process will be, as as opposed to, as you named, living with it, like living with my losses, living with my grief, living with my rage. And uh, you talk about a number of healing pathways, including community support, acknowledging your ancestors. Uh, One of them you mentioned is land. And I know you mentioned at the end of our interview, you're gonna be going for a long walk. So can you say something about uh, the healing that we can gain from being out in nature or reconnecting with the land.
0: Yes, yes. Um an elder taught me years ago, um, when I was feeling particularly disconnected from family for whatever reason at that time and particularly lonely in my own grief. Yeah. And this elder said to me, You know, Jenny, um, land is also your ancestor. So when you feel disconnected from humanity, when you feel disconnected from your roots, Remember that there are deep roots in these trees. Remember that they've been around maybe at times when your great grandmother has been around, right? You you, you know, so just the reminder that for those of us, sometimes when we talk about ancestral work, folks will say, Well, I don't know my family, I don't know my lineage. Um, and my loving reminder is, but you know grass, you know mother ocean, right? You know parent earth you know, you know, trees and that's a start. I'm not saying that's everything. And I'm not saying that that's enough, but I I, I am reminding us that we are in relationship to the land. Mm. Yeah. And then oftentimes what's happening in land and to animals and to things that are sentient beings that we don't always consider as sentient beings, right? they also have emotions and oftentimes perhaps they may experience or acknowledge that something is coming, whether it's a hurricane, a tornado, a tsunami before we do, that's right. right. And, and whether it's a polar bear in the Arctic that is not able to make it because of global warming. And so our animal fam has been warning us for a very long time, You know, when volcanoes erupt or take out whole cities, right like it's we're we're paying attention to the language of the land. And so that's the invitation too. when we're talking about this decolonial work, we're asking individuals to have more reverence for what colonization has taught us to take for granted. Mm. Yes. Thank
1: you so much. And it is, when we talk about accessibility uh, for most of us, that will be accessible to be able to uh, connect uh, with the earth around us. And so, uh, can you give a final plug for the book and also <laughs> share your website and how people can keep up with you?
0: Thank you. Yeah. Um, so you can find the book anywhere almost that books are available. Please feel free to go to our website, www.decolonizingtherapy.com. There is a book, a book page there um, everywhere from Barnes and Nobles to Amazon to Norton to your local indie bookseller audiobook will be out in January 2024. So that's exciting. Awesome. Um, and are you the reader? I am not, unfortunately. Oh, I know. I know. Just thank you. Your, your energy. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. all right. We know it'll be a thank great you. voice. Yeah. Thank you. But the reader sounds amazing. I, I got to co-sign and wow. I'm still feeling them. Um, but thank you.
1: Yes.
0: And another reminder is that this book is meant to be sort of savored. It's a journey. Go with it in chunks. There is a healing process sort of imbued in the book itself. So there's a part in the beginning where it's like the roots of the tree, right? And giving you a little bit of history and what on earth does colonization have to do with my mental health, right? What on earth is, what's the relationship to that? And part two is giving us more of like what's generational trauma, How does my ancestry connect to me, right? What is rage? What is grief? And how does that connect to this work in this way? And then the last part are like the leaves, the hope, the future, right? Why energetic or energy and boundaries are important to our mental, emotional health, how it can help give us more energy, as well as what does it look like to work with in a frame, a more politicized practice, Right. And again, this could be for coaches. This could be for therapists, social workers, as well as individuals that may be seeking therapy and looking for folks that can hold the totality of who you are. We don't want people putting aspects of themselves in boxes anymore. It's time to come out. (laughs) Mm, I love it.
1: I love it. That invitation for our whole selves. Well, this uh, conversation has just been so nourishing and exciting to me. And for those of you who are listening, I invite your soul to tell your heart, mind, body, and spirit: welcome home.